Now let's turn in God's Word, somewhat an explanation of that which we have just sung, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we'll be reading the first 21 verses this evening. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Let's hear then the breathed out word of God to us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is right comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we again read of the work of your Spirit. Father, as we pray many times coming into the preaching of your word, that you would accompany the words that Pastor Bob brings with the unction of the Holy Spirit. Father, simply this means that it comes in the power and the mystery of the Spirit. Father, that it opens the eyes, Father, of those who are yours, that we may see Christ ever more clearly. Father, we may see his beauty ever more clearly before us. But, Father, it is a power that can take a heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh as well. 
And Father, if there be anybody here tonight that does not know Christ as the Savior, we pray that the Spirit would work in his heart. And Father, that he would be willing and able to believe. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Two things from John chapter 3 as we deal with the subject of a man called Nicodemus this evening. First of all, what do the scriptures say about this man? What, what are we told? He, he makes an appearance here in John chapter 3. What, what does John 3 tell us about him? And what do the scriptures continue to reveal to us about this man? The second thing is that the center point of why Nicodemus is found on the pages of scripture is because it gives Jesus the opportunity to speak about the Spirit. And so one can never think about Nicodemus without thinking about this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus that centers on the work of the Spirit. And that leads to this beautiful text that so many know and recite. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son. So first of all, the scriptures in Nicodemus. First thing to just take note of is his name. Now we might look at it and say, that's kind of a strange name, Nicodemus. All right? We might say Nicholas. We have a number of those with us. But Nicodemus, that, that just seems kind of a strange name. Well, first thing I need to tell you is it's not Hebrew. It's Greek. It's a Greek name. Uh, derived uh, out of a Greek origin, named after the god Nike. That's the Nika part, the god Nike. And the demos, which means people, from whence we get the word democracy. So, but Nike means victory. So it's the victory of the people. That's what his name means. Nicodemus, the victory of the people. Now one wonders in his background what it was, where we were at in history in terms of his parents and why they would call their son Nicodemus. Uh, maybe some event had happened and taken place, we just don't know. But this is the name he carries forward into Scripture. A name, by the way, that was not uncommon in Jesus' day. So it's not like he's the only guy running around uh, the Roman world carrying this name. It was a common, a very familiar name to be had. However, he's the only one in Scripture that carries this name. Secondly, we are told not only his name, but we're actually told first that he is a Pharisee. When we're introduced to this man, the first thing we're told before we even know his name is that he's a Pharisee. He's a member of that Jewish religious group, legalistic Many confrontations as we've gone through uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, we have noted that, how often it is that the Pharisees are coming to challenge Jesus. Um, and uh, apart from our common notion that probably most people hated the Pharisees, the Pharisees were actually the most loved of the various religious groups of the day. Even though they carried with it that holier-than-thou attitude, as we see in so many of Jesus' parables, particularly the parable of uh, the Pharisee and the publican, uh, where the Pharisee is looking so down his nose at this publican. Yet, for the people, the Pharisees remained popular because they didn't see them as cave-ins. 
uh, as the Sadducees were. The Sadducees uh, capitulated with the Roman government and uh, the common people that just irritated them. And they, the, fair, the Sadducees tended to be kind of the rich elite which kind of rubbed uh, them the wrong way as well, whereas Pharisees were more ordinary people who through education became trained as Pharisees and remained very opposed to any sort of coming together with the Roman world. That's what he's a part of. He is a teacher in this group. Jesus refers to that later on here. You are a teacher so he's an instructor. He's somebody who would fall into the same realm as a Gamaliel uh, that we read about later. A very highly respected teacher in Israel. That's what Nicodemus is. Third thing that we learn about him is found also in verse 1. Not only that he's a Pharisee, that his name is Nicodemus, but that he is a ruler of the Jews. This means that he is a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men who are given the responsibility of uh, making decisions regarding religious matters under Roman rule. That's why there is such a limitation that, that they have, as we referred to this morning. Even though they might condemn somebody for their sin of adultery, they could not execute the death penalty for it. So we have in the uh, gospel accounts of Jesus that they fall short, they condemn him, but they're unable to carry out the sentence. That they have to go to the Romans to do. And the only way they're going to convince the Romans to kill Jesus is to prove that he's some sort of insurrectionist. If they just said he's some religious zealot, Rome could have cared less. If they had said, and, well, he committed adultery, Rome's like, yeah, get out of here. I have, we have other things to do. But it's because of that insurrection that Rome is willing to deal with it. Yet, they are a very powerful force, this Sanhedrin, in Jewish society. The fourth thing that we learn about Nicodemus from Scripture is what we find in verse 2, that this man came to Jesus. Now, we also note that he came at night which indicates that he does not really want to be seen because he's not coming in the, what we would find in the typical gospel accounts as a confrontation. We might say he is truly coming as a seeker. He is one coming to seek what he can learn from Jesus. Listen to his words. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. He's making a break from most of his colleagues. He is separating himself off. His colleagues are saying, he's got the spirit of a demon. He's Beelzebub. He's operating under the power of Satan. Nicodemus is saying, I don't see that. Rabbi, I see that you are a man of God. I, I see something different than my colleagues see. Now, maybe it's because of this turn that Nicodemus admits to here as to his own confession that he comes at night. He just doesn't want to be seen. 
He's unwilling at this point, as it were, to, to put all his eggs in this one basket. Maybe that's the reason for the visit. He recognizes Jesus as a teacher. He's not yet willing to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He's not willing to take that step. But yet he wants to know. He wants to learn. He wants to come to understand. He came to Jesus. And I would say genuinely seeking, not the Messiah necessarily, but he's seeking to find out what makes Jesus tick. Something is going on with this man. And rather than confronting him, rather than challenging him publicly, he is personally, humbly coming to Jesus to seek out those answers to his many questions at this point. Yet, I think we could rightly say he is not a man of faith at this point in this juncture. He's not operating under faith. His lack of courage would be there. His statement indicates that he's not looking to Jesus as his Savior or as his Messiah or as the Christ. None of that is mentioned. But sincere, yes, he came to Jesus. Now the question is, that's what we're given. And then we have the conversation. And then we don't read much about Nicodemus. He's mentioned a couple more times. And the question is, by the time we get to the end of the Gospel of John, is Nicodemus truly a follower now of Jesus Christ? Rather than just being someone who is seeking information, has Nicodemus become a disciple? Let me lay out before you what happens in Scripture. Turn with me, first of all, forward just to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going way to the end of the chapter, verse 45. Jesus has been ministering, note in verse 40, okay, this is the prophet. Others said this is the Christ. This leads to a dispute, verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They had sent these officers to take Jesus into custody. The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now notice what happens. Verse 50. Nicodemus. So you see the controversy going on. The Pharisees as a group are going, why didn't you bring him? This guy's a fraud. This guy's no good. You should have brought him here. What are you doing? Are there any Pharisees that accept this man? Now notice what happens, verse 650. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, note that's reference now, and who was one of them, that is a Pharisee, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And what has Nicodemus just basically said? You're condemning this man unjustly. If you just listen to him, if you would just listen to what he's saying, you would not be so quick to condemn. Now notice he's saying that to the Pharisees, those of whom he is part of. They've just said, is anybody one of these Pharisees a follower? Nicodemus steps forward and defends Jesus. Notice how the Pharisees respond to Nicodemus's simple defense. Doesn't the guy, and isn't he entitled to a hearing? They reply, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. In other words, what they're saying to Nicodemus is this. Are you one of the disciples now too? They detect in Nicodemus' defense and his willingness to defend Jesus to their faces the fact that perhaps Nicodemus is now one of Jesus' disciples. Notice as well, when we come to John chapter 19, it's interesting, John is the one who seems to follow Nicodemus now through these events. He comes to him and now it's John who picks up on this. John chapter 19. Jesus is crucified. Jesus dies. Ask you the question, how many disciples are around? Many disciples are around, yet, when Jesus dies. If we put together the story of Scripture, the answer would be none. John has taken Mary home. But notice what happened. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also. Nicodemus also. Also what? Also came. Notice what John does. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night. What a contrast, isn't it, is made about Nicodemus. At night, he came with his seeking Jesus. Now, out in broad daylight, with Jesus' death and his crucifixion and all the taunting, Nicodemus comes out of the darkness into the light to assist with taking down the body of Jesus and, follow along, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloy, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom 
of the Jews. Are there any disciples doing this? Openly, publicly? Not a one. Joseph and Nicodemus are. Now, I don't know, and I, I wouldn't dare conclude in finality. Well, that underscores the fact that by the time he, this event occurs, Nicodemus is a believer and a follower. I'm not sure it does that. But it certainly indicates that Nicodemus, who came at night, no longer is doing so. And he is publicly willing to be associated with Jesus. Not in his teaching, but in his death. Go back to John chapter 3. Listen to what Jesus says. And then you have to go back to this and say, does Nicodemus now fit being a follower of Jesus Christ? I would not at all be surprised, brothers and sisters, if on the day we go to be with Jesus, Nicodemus is there as one who was a follower of Jesus. But, the point about Nicodemus being mentioned is not to center so much upon Nicodemus, but on the conversation that Jesus has. Because do you see how differently this conversation goes? Nicodemus begins, we recognize that you're a teacher, we recognize you've been sent for go from God. In other words, do I possess enough to be saved? Is that enough of an acknowledgement to be part of the kingdom? Do I just have to kind of nod my head, yep, Jesus was a great teacher. Well, he was one of the best rabbis ever. Notice what Jesus does. Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus just say? You can acknowledge the fact that I'm a teacher all you want, but that doesn't save you, Nicodemus. No, that isn't going to be enough to be part of the kingdom of heaven. It isn't enough to just acknowledge Jesus is really smart, Jesus is really wise, Jesus really gives good life coaching advice which is so prevalent in our society today. It's not enough to simply say, no, Jesus was a great prophet. No, that's enough. They, they, you can be saved if all you acknowledge is Jesus was a great prophet and teacher. No, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, how does that happen? How can that take place? Is Nicodemus's question. Jesus now gives to us the teaching of the work of the Holy Spirit. What is that work? 
Truly, truly, verse 5, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit is to cause spiritual rebirth. The Holy Spirit does not bring about reformation. That means to leave the person basically intact and to make some changes. To become a Christian isn't a honing process where we basically say, stay the same person we are, we just get rid of a few bad habits. Maybe we were on drugs, so we, we don't take drugs anymore. Maybe we were an alcoholic, so we don't do that. Maybe we swore, but we don't swear anymore. Maybe we were greedy, and so we work on that. Maybe we had a temper, so we work on that. We, we work on cleaning up our life, and the Holy Spirit helps us to make these changes to help us reform, help us become better people. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not cause us to be reformed. He causes us to be reborn. We become completely new people. This would not have mystified Nicodemus if he understood Jesus is simply saying the Holy Spirit's going to help you reform your life. Oh yeah, I can get that. But he understands, he gets it. You need, mean, I have to become a completely new person? Yes, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. We as believers in Jesus Christ are not the people we were conceived as. We are not the same. We've been reborn. We've been recreated. We've been reshaped, remolded. Our heart is different. Our mind is different. Our will is different. Everything about us has changed. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Remember Adam? He's laying there as a piece of clay, and the Lord breathes into him life, and Adam becomes a living soul. See, this whole chapter about the breath and the spirit is to bring us back to that. We are, Adam, dead in our trespasses in sin. We're corpses spiritually. But God takes us, reforms, reshapes, and breathes into us new life. So we're not the old man of sin. The new man in Christ. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, some of you, some of you at one time were greedy. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were homosexual offenders. Some of you were, were thieves. But you've been 
remade. You're new creatures in Christ. You're not that old person any longer. We don't do that. Nicodemus is wondering, well, how am I going to do that? How can I do that? And Jesus is explaining to him, Nicodemus, you don't do that. Nicodemus, do I enter again a second time in my mother's womb and come out? No, 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 Nicodemus. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He is the one who causes this rebirth. Keep your finger here at John chapter 3. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Easiest way to find it, find Hebrews, go back, Philemon, Titus chapter 3. Listen to how Paul writes this. Starting at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By, how, how, how does God do this? By the washing of regeneration, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How does this happen? How does this renewal happen? Bob, just try a little harder, would you? I can never be a Christian by trying a little harder. It takes the work of God, the Holy Spirit, poured out into my heart and into my life. It takes that Holy Spirit breathing into me new life so that God sees me as a completely new creature. No, Nicodemus. (laughs) Just acknowledging I'm a good rabbi isn't going to cut it. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jesus speaks of the necessity of the Holy Spirit. No one, no one can enter the kingdom of God, verse 3, unless he is born again. He cannot see it. To see to, to, to a Jewish person is to enter. See is not like we understand, to see off in a distance. It's to be a part of, to participate in. Hence, just to make a note to this morning, hence when Jesus says, he who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed the adultery. See, the seeing is the doing. So whoever sees the kingdom of God, seeing means to be a part of, to have entered in. Unless one is born again, One cannot. This is the requirement. Nobody gets into heaven without being born again. No child, no baby, no infant, no premature infant gets into heaven without being born again. The oldest person who dies is not going to get into heaven unless they've been born again. 
No pastor, no, how, no matter how good his sermons are, is not going to get into heaven unless he's been born again. No teacher, no writer, no Christian author is going to get into heaven unless they've been born again. No person reading their Bible daily, praying daily, is going to get into heaven unless they've been born again. we got to listen to Jesus' words. We can't earn our way into this. There is no salvation by works. Titus chapter 3. It is only by being born again. And that's what makes it such a necessity. You must be born again. In order to enter the kingdom of God. In order to have eternal life. In order to spend eternity in glory. You can't just produce the papers. Well, my grandfather was a Christian. My dad was a Christian. Doesn't cut it. Nicodemus could have done that. But Jesus says to him, a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee, the guy who follows the law, follows the law zealously, one who is a member of the highest Jewish ruling council there is, you must be born again. It's the only way you're going to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. The work of the Spirit, the necessity of the Spirit, And then Jesus, beautifully, is telling Nicodemus, and that spirit, Nicodemus, is coming. The spirit is coming. This spirit that causes men to be born again. This spirit that enters in as God breathed into Adam. This breath of God is coming. He illustrates it, first of all, in verse 8. The wind, Nicodemus, the Spirit comes like the wind. You can't predict it. You can't time it. You can't say at the 13th birthday, everybody gets born again. For some people, they do. For some people, it was in the womb. For some people, it was the moment after conception. For some people, it is the instant before their death. You can't predict the wind. And meteorologists have enough problem just predicting the weather, much less the wind and the wind speed and the direction of the wind and where it comes from and where it's going. The wind. He speaks of the fact that, that this spirit is going to come something has to happen first. The Son of Man needs to be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Verse 15, excuse me, verse 14. As Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up. He's going to die. Nicodemus, the the Pharisees are going to have their way. I'm going to die. But that's part of the coming of the Spirit. Because the one who dies 
is also going to ascend. Verse 13. So put it all together. Jesus is going to die. He's going to ascend. The wind is going to blow. The Spirit is going to come. Got to put in one more slash mark. And then he promises this over and over and over again. John chapter 14. I am going away and I will send you the comforter. I'm going away and I will send you the helper. I'm going away and I will send and I will send and I will send. But I'm not sending it until I go away. Nicodemus, this spirit that causes men, women, and children to be born again, I am going to send. I'm going to send into this world. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The day of Pentecost, you see, refers to a feast of the Jews. It was a feast day. It was a feast day to celebrate the ingathering of crops, the harvest that was brought in. It was celebrated 50 days after Passover. Fifty days after Passover. The ascension of Jesus took place ten days, or excuse me, forty days after the resurrection. And he told them to wait. And on the first day of the week, ten days later, on the 50th day, on Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing, hmm, note this, wind. Did Jesus refer to that in his discussion with Nicodemus? Of course he did. The Spirit is like the wind. Why does it come like the wind? Because one, this is the way Jesus referred to it, but this is the breath of God. This is the breath of life. This is the breath of the new creation. What is the breath of the new creation? What is the breath of God? The Holy Spirit. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What happens? What happens? Those who were in hiding, those who were in darkness, those who were afraid, now come to the forefront. They're standing before the very people who had condemned their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And now out in the open, proclaiming in a variety of languages the good news of the gospel, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The one who had denied him three times tried to disassociate himself 
from him. Takes the lead. Stands at the forefront. The apostle Peter. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what happens? God ingathers his people. Some 3,000 are added to the church that day. Not three, not 30, not 300, 3,000. Unless a man is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. You never know, Nicodemus, where the wind comes from or where it blows. But you always, always know its effect. When the Holy Spirit blows the breath of life into an individual, they become a new creature in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son so that who would ever believe in him may not die but have eternal life. But here is the grace. That's the love. The outpoured love of the Father for you and I. He gave us his son so that whoever believes, the problem is none of us could ever believe on our own. We'd all come to perhaps the point of Nicodemus. Jesus was a good man. Jesus is a good rabbi. He's probably somebody who's got some special anointing from God. You only come to believe that he is your Lord and that he is your Savior because of God's grace. What's the grace? He sends forth his Spirit. Because without Pentecost, without the Spirit, we have no hope. just have a nice story of love that none of us would ever believe. But the Spirit breathes new life into us so that we hear the message of Christ and we believe in the love of God in Jesus Christ. What a love. What a grace. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. What an encouraging word you have given to us today. And we thank you, Father, for the pouring out of your Spirit into this world. And after the ascension of our Lord and Savior, he gave to us, to the world, to the church, to every believer, to every one of the elect, this beautiful, beautiful gift of the breath of God filling us with life anew. That I may love what you would have me love and do 
you would have me do. In Christ's beautiful, glorious name we pray, God's people say, Amen.